You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. The time now is 10 of 4. It is Sunday, the 29th of January, 2023. You are listening to the World Weekend World Show with Asana Ahmadi, wishing all our listeners uh, cold, wintry welcome, Alid. Mm. Uh, listen to The Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile or online, 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Beth of Fatou Mosque in Morden. Weekend World Show, the current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment. A message of Islam for the West. Uh, to join us, why not phone us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK and share your stories or views. The voice, uh, the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Uh, will it Martin Luther King, as always, will he joining me as my co-host. Uh, mm-hmm. Will it Martin Luther King Jr., he said that... Uh, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence that by the good people. Yeah. Uh, About people not speaking up, um, <clears throat> not uh, standing against those who are committing evil. Indeed, indeed. And uh, calling them out. And you have to, do you mm. know? Mm, Otherwise, yes. uh, your silence is siding with, mm. with, with those perpetrating mm. the offences. Mm. I bring this forward in in regard with, uh, as we remember, the Holocaust against the Jewish people that Mm. was perpetrated by the European nations. Uh, We also remember oppression of other, uh, some some recent, some forgotten, Mm -hmm. uh, annihilation of the Indian Americans, for example. Mm. By European nations. uh, uh, Again, yes, Mm. the Aborigines. By European nations. nations. (laughs) And more recently, what is happening to the Palestinian people. Mm Um, and the West has done what the West has done to the Iraqi people mm, by European nations, but, and and mm. what has been done to the Libyan people by European, European nations. <laughs> We've got a common theme here. Well, there you go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, have you not learned our lessons? What is the worth of the Holocaust Memorial Day if nations continue to oppress others? It's a very sobering question, mm. and uh, we should reflect uh, uh, carefully on this. It's unfortunate. It doesn't seem to be the case that we've learned our lesson. Yeah, I, I mean that's the, that's the, the answer. It, it is, and the horrific uh, things that happened to the Jewish people mm. uh, has happened to other people as well. And yes. I think sometimes uh, the Holocaust is forgotten about those other people. Mm. Uh, it's not just of the Jewish people, although that was mm. something that is at the doorstep of the European nations, as you keep mm. pointing out rightly. Mm. Uh, but we need to look at what other things have happened. I think that's something we might look into the show later on. Right, that's very good. And talking of what's in the show, please mm. tell us what have you got in line for our listeners. We will start off uh, the show with our uh, news review, as usual, and looking at some of the key stories around the world, followed uh, with uh, 
Mahmoud Rafiq. Uh, Mahmoud represents the Ahmadi Muslim Community's External Affairs Department and is a budding politician, having uh, recently entered the political arena. Indeed. He, uh, apparently, he went to the 10 Downing Street the other day. Oh, so yes, we might yeah. ask him a question or two about that. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. he's quite famous now. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll find out from him. <laughs> we'll make him famous if no one else will. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, just continuing, we'd all, I mean, we will also have the Faith in Focus where we're going to look at the life and claims of the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim Community, the Promised Indeed, this is a continuation of our mm. series of lives of various prophets, mm. and we've come to having completed, I say completed in, in quotations of the life of the Holy Prophet, <coughs> you could never complete that no. really in the time that we spent on it, uh, but certainly we need to move on, and uh, this is the next in line of the next claimant. And that of Hazem Zaglam Ahmed that you pointed mm-hmm. out. What about after the 11 o'clock news? Well, as we remember the Holocaust, Saf will join us, uh, we think, uh, to discuss where the lessons have been learned and also remember the other Holocausts that have uh, or that have or are taking place, ones uh, which seem to have been forgotten of those being perpetrated in recent times. It's a segment where we see the worst of humanity and what the worst of humanity can do. Indeed, and I think there's something that's important to highlight. Mm. Yeah, And uh, for the sports? FA Cup is uh, in its fourth round, and some interesting games and results to discuss towards the end of the show. Yep. Um, right, uh, Shahid might not be with us, so mm-hmm. maybe you'll be the expert on that oh, side of things. Right. Uh, okay. I hope you'll be watching match of the day. <laughs> <coughs> yes, uh, I'm not quite keen on uh, FA Cup uh-huh. early rounds. Has yeah. it lost its essence? This is a question we asked Shahid last year. Mm. Has the FA Cup lost the essence that it had? In our days, mm. there was something we really looked forward to. Or was, it, yeah. or was it just that we were young and we were into everything that was sports? No, no, no. It was because we didn't have Champions League. <laughs> 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 we had the European League. <laughs> Yes, but it wasn't the same. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the same. I mean, it wasn't the same. Taken, yes, it's, it's a new dimension now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. PR. <laughs> mm, yeah. Anyway, that's great to have you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Inshallah, we'll have all those interesting stories for our listeners. Anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with us and And the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, Waleed, we're going to move to our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Um, so uh, let's start off with our jingle. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, Waleed, uh, mm. you mentioned that uh, we have joining us Mahmoud Rafiq. He's the representative of the Amdi Muslim Communities External Affairs Department. Mm-hmm. And uh, early this year, we had him on and we were discussing the Freedom of Religion or Belief Conference held in July last year, which highlighted the Ahmadiyya persecution in Pakistan and other countries. That was organized by, it was a ministerial event, and it was organized by Fiona Bruce, uh, who's the envoy for, the special envoy for the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. who looks into persecution of faith and belief. Um, and joining us, uh, because who, someone who played a key part in that, is Mahmoud Rafiq. Assalamu alaikum, Mahmoud. Um, uh, 
Thank you for inviting me. No, no, it's a pleasure having you. And uh, we introduced you that you, you work for the Amdi Muslim Community External Affairs Department. And you're a budding politician. And uh, we had you on when you were fighting for a seat for the Lib Dems, or for, as a councillor. Is that right? That, that is true. That is true. Good. So, He's edging his way to a stand Downing Street as well. Well, he's he's making his way to mm. the Dan Downing Street, mm. and uh, so I thought I think he went just a few days ago, yes, just, just to, to check out the, the facilities, decorations. The, the decorations. <laughs> Is that correct, Mahmoud? You've been to Ten Downing Street. I did, but but not for political reasons. Oh, so, I see. Okay. So, so, so I just want to uh, nip that room in the bud. So, <laughs> even though there's been a lot of, uh, um, you know, last year was a record amount of prime ministers we had in one year. But, yes, that's right. <laughs> well, um, but, apparently that story of you being at Townings was apparently going to be breaking news on the front pages of the Mail and the Sun. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Nadeem Zahavi's story has taken over. So you've I been know. pushed. You, you've been pushed back to another date, another year possibly. Uh, but anyway, look, uh, you've been to the 10 Downing Street uh, last week. Uh, can you tell us, what were you doing there? Yeah, no, of course. So, you know, as you mentioned, um, uh, I work uh, for the Jamaat National um, uh, External Affairs Team. And um, um, so the Jamaat have been invited to... When you say Jamaat, you mean the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and the Muslim community had been invited to attend. Uh, um, it was a special, uh, so they were relaunching at the beginning of the year, Freedom of Religion, um, um, sort of special group. Mm. Uh, and the sort of first meeting, they had organized it in uh, 10 Downing Street. Um, so uh, I was fortunate enough um, to, um, to be selected to attend the meeting. And one of the main reasons why, uh, uh, from the Muslim community, we were keen to sort of uh, uh, attend the meeting was uh, obviously everyone's aware of the persecution we suffer in Pakistan and and the situation in Pakistan in the last few months has deteriorated. But but I think um, one of the sort of newest developments was what, what happened in Burkina Faso when nine members of our community were brutally murdered mm. uh, and it was for religious freedom uh, and it was the way that they were murdered in that was just so horrific so the uh, the purpose of uh, my purpose was mm. to highlight that uh, what had happened talk about um, I mean what, the way Hazur has described it the sort of nine diamonds um, of Ahmadiyya right had uh, given their lives and it was quite sad that, that we started New Year and you know, starts off with this sort of news, but sadly we live in this world. So we talked about that as well as the uh, in Pakistan there's been a um, the escalation of violence, the de- desecration of gravestones in Pakistan, etc. So now carry on. No, no. So that that oh. was the main uh, purpose was to bring to everyone's attention that. You know, um, while sadly that things have, uh, I mean, the, uh, you know, this battle has opened on a new frontier, right, where they've now started attacking us in, you know, our mosques in Africa, etc. Before mm-hmm. it was sort of, it was felt it was confined to, you know, certain countries, but mm-hmm. now it's escalating. Indeed. And, it, and the message, our message was that people need to pay attention, and if they don't stop this now, it could get far worse. 
And 10 Downing, 10 Downing Street represents basically the government because it's the it's a residence of the Prime Minister and where all the important meetings take, take place. So at this meeting, uh, who was present and how was your presentation of what is happening to the Ahmadiyyas received there and what sort of things were said? So obviously this, as, as you said at the beginning of the meeting, this meeting was sort of organised by the APPG Group for Freedom of Religion, as well as um, uh, Fiona Bruce, uh, the special representative uh, for, uh, uh, for the freedom of religion, uh, was present, uh, as well as a number of NGOs and uh, key other stakeholders from other various different uh, government departments. So, to be honest, uh, we had already submitted a sort of um, uh, incident report which detailed all, all of the information uh, about what had happened in Pakistan as well as uh, in Burkina Faso. So, uh, I think the key thing was that unanimously everyone said that we stand with them in the Muslim community. We w- we want to show our solidarity and mm. our condolences to what happened in Burkina Faso. And uh, I think they were all in, united in sort of condemning what had, had happened. Now, how, how do you fix something like that in Burkina Faso? I think that's a far bigger problem, uh, even bigger than what, what the government can do. But at least um, they will raise it. It'll be uh, at the highest level raised to the Burkina Faso. But I think they've got some more structural issues that they need to sort of address there. Right. And in terms of... Uh... Uh, the event that took place back in July, I think it was, uh, for, uh, the ministerial event, Freedom of Religion or Belief, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community was very well represented there, were they not? Even uh, His Holiness as a Muslim Muslim uh, was given the opportunity to address uh, the audience there. Yeah, no, I think that was quite a historical uh, conference. Uh, I think it was after a long time UK had taken the lead, and last uh, so last year they'd organised that conference, and they had delegates from all around the world. Uh, it was quite pleasing that even um, um, there was a large contingent from the US uh, and the Muslim community. US had also come to show support, and uh, and in the opening uh, session. Um, we had a very nice message from His Holiness uh, Masroor Ahmed. Um, and uh, to be honest, it, that set the tone for the conference. So obviously it covered a wide range of issues. There, uh, but um, uh, um, there were a number of breakout sessions. Uh, and to be, I think uh, Jamaat represented about six or seven of those uh, breakout mm. sessions. Uh, Indeed, so very, very well. In fact, I, I would have thought the most, uh, uh, most uh, clear uh, representation was from the Amnesty Muslim community in that conference. So uh, well done. I mean, to... add, uh, uh, um, I think uh, in the next few weeks, uh, the same thing, uh, similar conference, um, not on a global scale, but more for the U.S. is happening uh, in America. And again, the U.S. Jamaat and the Muslim community is heavily involved in it. So they'll be organizing a number of briefing sessions, etc. Mm. So again, um, you know, freedom of religion is, um, we're, we're working globally on this issue so to try and bring it to the forefront. Right. And, and in terms of uh, the support from the government, uh, you, you mentioned America. The American government is very supportive of what's hap- uh, of the Muslim community 
and what's being done there in the UK in particular are. But what sort of influence does this have on the governments like Pakistan? Because things haven't improved for us, but uh, do, what sort of pressure can these governments put on uh, the likes of Pakistan? I, I do think it does have that impact because by just ignoring it, um, you know, you can't solve the issue, right? So by raising it, you're mm. constantly minding them, and it does have a, it does embarrass them, uh, and they do. They, I mean, some of the governments want to also make changes, but sometimes, you know, structurally, there's so many different elements now uh, in the world, uh, or different pressure groups uh, uh, competing for different things that it just makes it hard right and some of the obviously the countries we're talking about Burkina Faso Pakistan you know is corrupt there's so many different challenges that the governments are facing uh, security terrorism that you know, even if the best will in the world if you try to say it, so we're going to address religious freedom but if there's no police security if there's if they don't have the police army or they can't secure their own borders mm-hmm. <laughs> it does make it tough uh, it but does. um but the, but they do take it seriously they do listen but there's some of these countries have got some major major challenges on their hands indeed and i presume the challenges are that in pakistan it is state sponsored because it's written in law but Ahmadis don't have those rights. The case in Burkina Faso is more of a terrorist case um, where people of a certain ideology, whether you're Ahmadis or not, will not make a difference to them because a lot of attacks are taking place. But these are issues that governments will need to address because at the end of the day, they have to safeguard their, their people, whoever they are. And the Ahmadis in Pakistan are loyal, loyal to that country, are they not? Of course they are. I mean... Um, we- We've all, I've got family still there, and um, they've served in the armed forces. They're, they're part of the fabric of the society, and sadly, they're treated like second-class citizens, and they're, they're constantly in fear of their lives. But, uh, you, know, um, you know, even when it comes to cricket, I, I know people here are still supporting Pakistan, even though they've been born abroad up here. So I think the love is quite uh, strong and it's OK to support two, two cricket teams. Despite what, what, what happens, because uh, we know ultimately that these are something that are uh, not uh, um, uh, something that Islam allows to happen and, and Pakistan needs to reform because we want Pakistan to reform to be a better nation than it's showing to be to the world. No, of course, of course. And Pakistan, you know, they they face terrorism and uh, extremism uh, themselves, right? Mm. So, you know, um, next door neighbor, Afghanistan, um, you've got Taliban there, uh, the, the, the skirmishes there. And I think it's that whole concept of intolerance, right? So, Pakistan have shown intolerance to us, and and but then you know if they, if you don't keep it if you don't keep a check on it, mm. you know no one is uh, they, they, that same group shows intolerance to everyone, right? So Indeed. today it's Hindus, then it's Shia, then it's Hazaras, then it's some other group, and and that's what we're seeing. And to be honest, we're seeing that intolerance culture all mm. around. Indeed, and I think. Uh, by being invited to attend Downing Street and given prominence in the freedom and religion 
or belief conference, it shows you that uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community's cause is being listened to and being supported by governments at a very, very high level. So well done to your team of continuing that good work. And talking of human rights, uh, Mahmoud, there was a story this week uh, as reported by Al Jazeera, I believe. What, what's the story there? Yes, it's regarding uh, the... Um uh, well, the events taking place in the Middle East, in mm. Jerusalem in, in particular, um, it's uh, gunmen injury, injuries, injuring uh, two Israelis. And the shooting uh, came hours after seven people were killed outside a synagogue and two days uh, after deadliest Israeli raids in, uh, in the West Bank for 20 years. Israel's ambulance service said a father and son in their 50s and 20s were badly hurt in the incident in a Jewish neighborhood near the Old City on Saturday morning. Uh, police said the assailant had been shot and killed at the scene by armed passers-by. Yes, so Saturday's shooting came after a Palestinian gunman killed seven people, including children near a synagogue, and came a day after the deadliest Israeli raid in the West Bank in two decades, in which nine Palestinians were killed, including two civilians. They say two civilians, we don't know what the other, who the others are. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Bet Salem, the Israeli Human Rights Watch, what did they report, Willie? The occupied territories in 2022 faced the largest number of Palestinians killed by Israel in the West Bank since 2004. In the West Bank, uh, uh, including East Jerusalem, Israeli forces killed 146 Palestinians, the largest number since 2004. Among the persons killed were five women, 34 minors, the youngest of them, 12 years old, seven were 50 or older, and the eldest was 78 years old. Yeah, Mahmoud, uh, I mean, a horrific situation for the Palestinian people, but attacking the synagogue is condemnable. Uh, we cannot support that. And uh, But violence upon violence just begets more violence, does it not? No, it does, and uh, sadly... As you mentioned, things have just escalated to, uh, um, uh, and it's quite worrying because it's literally tick for tat, but it's also, you know, uh, um, it's unrestrained. So, you know, if you look at the Palestinian numbers, it's sort of 35 I'd read somewhere versus seven. And as you said, you know, the attack on a synagogue, uh, you know, on a on the Sabbath is just um, you know, condemnable and just uh, you shouldn't kill anyone on any circumstances, anything. But I think what the sad reality is that even these um, two attacks that were done by a 21-year-old and the other attack uh, where, uh, was a teenager. 13, 13 we believe, yeah, yeah, that's right. 13-year-old teenagers, and and um, and it looks like when you do the research and what the newspapers are saying, they acted out of their own accord. They mm. weren't part of the organization. It wasn't part of anything. So it, ultimately, you know, His Holiness has talked about this. You know, it's talking about absolute justice, right? Mm. You know, you as a nation, you have to have justice, and where there is no justice, uh, you know, and uh, people are suffering. Um, I think the 21-year-old who uh, uh, murdered or killed seven people at the synagogue, uh, his grandfather was also killed by uh, a, set, a Jewish settlement um, seven or ten years ago, and no mm. one was justice. So, so I think, uh, sadly, uh, and 
it doesn't help um, when the government is quite a right-wing government and initially straight away their rhetoric was that we don't believe in the uh, uh, Palestinian settlements we're going to annex them uh, when you come in with that sort of language it does make it hard to then talk of peace uh, I do think there has to be justice for both or uh, ec something equitable for both uh, so that they could live uh, in peace. Uh, and the other thing that really shocked me was, I didn't realize this till I was reading the story, that from the, the, um, from the two Palestinian families, or um, they, you know, because they did this uh, shooting, mm. they, they, uh, for one of them, they're, they're uh, demolishing his home, and... Um, from the family to take away their sort of social security and health uh, benefits because they were Israeli uh, citizens. So it was just, uh, um, in a way, sort of uh, punishing the family as well, uh, which I don't agree with because even in uh, here, democracy, if someone's done something wrong, you punish him, not his family and stuff like that. Mm. Because resentment will then continue for the next generations upon generations. Do you think that this is something that we should expect when we were talking about good people remaining silent, that the rest of the world remains silent over the underlying injustice that is being uh, inflicted upon uh, the Palestinians? And particularly in the sense that... Uh, when when the Palestinians were killed, there was hardly any coverage on any of the main channels apart from Channel 4 and possibly Al Jazeera and possibly Channel mm. 4. But whereas as soon as an Israeli incident happens, killings, suddenly it's front page for everyone with a slight mention about the nine Isra Palestinians being killed. Uh, so, I mean, that sort of feeds into the sort of narrative of justice, but um, I, I, as you said, uh, it needs to be highlighted. But Sadly, if you look at the news cycle, um, there's a lot of violence all around the world. There's so many different stories, and it just feels like globally everything is going more right-wing. Uh, people are indifferent to these sort of stories. So mm. you, you, the more horrific it is, the more um, coverage it gets. But, but, uh, um, but, and you're right, I think countries do need to make this uh, uh, need to globally come together and trying to uh, come up with a solution for this um, um, I, I've heard, uh, I think I was reading somewhere, the US Secretary of State is planning to visit on Monday to try and um, talk to the different organizations mm. but I think it's also when you look at this um, even on the Palestinian organization they need to also reform right? Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, complaints about um, how um, uh, it's the same leadership, they haven't brought change. They haven't, uh, uh, so I think on both sides, there needs to be, uh, um, yeah, there needs to be some sort of tolerance and, uh, they, and then they have to have that dialogue, right? Uh, mm. if on both sides, you, they don't want to talk to each other. They, they're on the extreme end of the spectrum. You're just never going to move forward. But the thing is, every time an American diplomat goes to Israel, he only goes and speaks to the Israelis. They never tend to speak to Hamas, who are the, the you know, democratically elected party. Whether you like them or not, they're the party that's been elected. And as one uh, Palestinian negotiator back in the 80s used to say, 
that if you don't speak to your enemy, how are you going to create peace? Uh, even if you consider the Palestinians as your enemy. And at the time, Yasser Arafat was a very uh, liberal leader compared to, say, Hamas. But they never used to speak to him, and they never allowed him to go to the, U- to the United States, to the UN, to address the United Nations. So uh, it's a bit, uh, you know, calling the kettle black uh, here, situation with the Americans, is it not? It, it is, but then again, we did have the Oslo Accord, right? Uh, mm. that did- but, um, so that did happen. Um, um, so they did come close to some sort of agreement. Um, they did create that settlement. So I'm not saying it's perfect, right? Uh, mm. I'm not defending the, the U.S. policy on this. What, what I'm, I'm saying is that that dialogue does need to exist. And it's not just... And the other thing is, um, sadly, the U.S. has lost its way as well, right? So before it was sort of... People did think of it as a global superpower who was just Trump's regime and the way they brought the talked about Jerusalem and, and bringing the embassy there etc that changed some of the do you know to be an honest broker uh, you've got to be fair right and um, once that fairness goes so I, I do it's beauty I think the EU had this I, I did like this concept where they they've created a coalition of number of countries and they said okay now let's let's try and negotiate and figure out something so i don't think we should rely on one country mm. we this should be a number of different countries sort of working towards this goal uh, it just feels at the moment there's just too many different competing goals and uh, um and to be honest, no one's really focused on this, sadly. Mm, that's a good point yeah. you bring there, Mahmoud. Uh, Mahmoud, uh, mm. sorry. I just wanted to just say, I don't mind it take, taking time from my my, <laughs> my bit, uh, but don't you think that it is basically the United States that has the, has the um, upper hand, the hand that matters? Uh, and it, if the United States is uh, on side, then things would move. If it's not, then it won't move. We had that with the uh, with the Iran uh, deal, nuclear deal, for instance. Uh, it has collapsed because the United States did not want it to continue. And the Euro- Europeans are fully for it. And the Europeans are fully for it. And in the same way, if uh, they move regarding uh, regarding Palestine and Israel, then then something will happen. But they are not willing to do it because there is a very, very strong uh, Jewish lobby in the United States that prevents them from doing that. And therefore, the, the future is bleak. So, as I agree with, the future is bleak. Uh, I, I do also think the U.S. has a big role to play. But I just personally think yeah, the whole world cannot, um, cannot be controlled by the U.S., uh, so this whole narrative that if the U.S. doesn't do anything, nothing can happen. I do think, you know, we talked about good voices or good people. Uh, we talked about, mm. you know, Europe is a big uh, force. Uh, you know, even Russia is a big force. Right? Um, so if a number of countries get together, th- things can happen. Yes, if the U.S. pushes them faster, but, you know, we, we can't just rely on one country to act as the global police. Anything it's proven now that we need other good countries to step forward. Uh, we share that thought with you. Thank you very much, Mahmoud, for giving us your views. And uh, there were other news items, but these were the important ones we wanted to cover. And thank mm. you very much for sharing those with us. Okay. 
Yeah, I think Mahmoud's right, isn't he? That it can't just be the Americans leading this. You need Russia involved. You need the Saudis, I believe, to be involved in this. And you need the Turkish to be involved and mm. the Europeans. Only then can we really bring about peace. And at the moment, that's not happening. No, no, but I think the overarching deciding, the player that decides what happens is the United States. Yeah. Uh, Un- unquestionably. Unquestionably, yeah. Right. Um, and uh, I think that uh, the responsibility, it is a big responsibility on the United mm. States. And it will, it will, I mean, in as far as history is concerned, mm. uh, it will mark their contribution uh, to human history yes. as to how they behave in this hour when they are in uh, such a powerful position. Mm. And at the moment, they're not doing so well. They're not doing so well. In fact, I went to see a play uh, last year on the Oslo Accord, mm. how that came about. Excellent play. I mean, the that was led by the, the, by the Norwegians. Mm. Uh, and they excluded everyone else. They spoke to the Palestinians directly. Very tough negotiating. Mm. Lots of disagreements. But how they through those negotiations, chiseled out some of the disagreements, mm. stuck by some of their principles, mm. and got the agreement. It's yeah. a fascinating play. Yeah. I must advise everyone, mm. if you're still around. Mm. <laughs> uh, it might not be. But anyway, let's yeah. move on to our next segment of the show, which is uh, our Faith in Focus segment. Uh, we're going to start with the Holy Quran, with chapter 62, verse 3. هو الذي بعث في الأمين رسولا منهم يتلو عليهم آياته ويزكيهم ويعلمهم الكتاب والحكمة وإن كانوا من قبل لفي ضلال مبين Allah says, He it is who has raised among the unlettered people a messenger from among themselves who recites unto them his signs and purifies them and teaches them the book and wisdom, although they had been before in manifest guidance. This verse is a very important verse, and we'll be dealing uh, the insight of this verse uh, mm. in our programs uh, in, uh, following this week. Mm-hmm. But let's start with, uh, with, the, with where we are today. In the last several editions of the program, we covered the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as part of a series we are doing on all prophets. Now, before we complete this series, we are going to cover the prophethood and claims of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, may peace be upon him. So, Ali, tell us mm. something to begin with about this prophet, possibly yeah. his early life. Yes, um, well, um, the prophet we are going to be talking about is uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, mm. uh, peace be upon him, the founder of the Amdi community. Uh, he was born in Kalyan, a remote village in India, on 13th February 1835. He came from a noble family of uh, landowners and was uh, brought up in a relative comfort. Uh, no formal system of schooling in those days. So his father appointed private tutors from time to time to uh, help him with his education. Uh, records make mention of a teacher by the name of Fazle Elahi who uh, was hired when he was uh, around six or seven to teach him the Holy Quran and a few elementary Persian uh, books. Uh, similarly, at the age of 10, he was taught by another tutor named uh, Fazl and uh, he taught him elements of uh, Arabic grammar. And then we have Gul Ali Shah who educated the young Mirza Ghulam Ahmad further on Arabic grammar and some logic. His own father was an experienced physician 
So he learned the basics of medicine from him. Yes, although he received this kind of education, uh, from what I understand, he did a lot of his own undertaking of understanding things as mm. well and, and, and did his own studies. Yes, that's very true. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, when he was growing up, uh, there were only two places it was uh, rumored that he could be found. Uh, the mosque uh, in prayer mm. or in his room, pouring over his books. And once uh, a friend visiting his father said to him that we know about your elder son, but what about your younger one, meaning Ghulam Ahmed? And uh, when his father brought the guest up to his room, he found uh, the young Mizah Ghulam Ahmed uh, engrossed in deep study, oblivious to what was going on uh, and who had just entered. Uh, and there were times when his father became uh, worried about his son's health owing to the amount he spent in studies in this manner and cautioned him about it. So study and prayer were very much the hallmark of his life. Uh, he was not prone to sports or games as many youngsters then or now are more accustomed to. Uh, but this does not mean that he was not physically uh, fit. Uh, I, I say this because uh, it is related that when he had gained employment in his early adulthood in Sialkot, a chap by the name of Bala Singh decided to challenge everyone to a race he boasted about his athletic prowess and claimed that he was so fast that no one could beat him. And our young Mr. Ghulam Ahmed took up the challenge. The two lined up. No doubt spectators had gathered. The race happened, and Mr. Ghulam Ahmed beat the boaster fair and square, putting the vanquished Bala Singh in his place. So from a physical standpoint, we can discern that uh, the young husband, Mr. Ghulam Ahmed, was strong and sturdy. But having said this, uh, it, uh, we need to emphasize the fact that it was his yearning for prayer uh, that dominated uh, his growing up. And this was epitomized by the, this incident in his early childhood when he requested a girl playmate to pray for him that he might be granted the grace of prayer. So this indicated the passion he cultivated for dua or for prayer and how he developed this in his later life where through prayer he was enabled by God to overcome many insurmountable difficulties and sow the seeds of a remarkable movement that has stood the test of time and continues to flourish. And here uh, we're reminded of the root of the success that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was blessed with. It wasn't, as has been explained by many a wise analyst, it wasn't a success that was obtained on the fields of Badr or with the Treaty of the Bia. Uh, but it was secured in the dead of night in the caves of Hira or in his residence where the Holy Prophet spent hours upon hours beseeching the favors of his Lord. In the, in the case of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam, we can observe the successes that Allah blessed him in his life and those witnessed by the community he established are very much the fruits of his prayers that we are benefiting from to this very day. It would be fair, would it not, to say that if you were to encompass the early life of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, then prayer was a key part mm. of that, the early life. Very true. Yeah? yeah. Very true. That, that, that's something that comes across very strongly. Yes, yes. And his reliance on God himself. Mm, mm. Is there some sort of a re, uh, reflection of that reward um, in the sense that did God sort of guide him towards anything? Yes, I mean, I, the uh, 
I suppose the uh, most uh, uh, prized favor of God Almighty uh, that can be given to an individual mm. is that of direct communion. Indeed. Uh, revelation, yes. in other words. And uh, the likes of us cannot fathom that, no, cannot achieve that, no. right? Yeah. But true dreams are also yes. a, a fraction, a fraction of, of, uh, yeah. of that. But direct communication is something different. Something very different. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean it does, cannot happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, any individual who uh, uh, tries uh, and uh, makes the effort mm-hmm. Uh, can receive uh, that kind of uh, a favor. Right. And this is certainly the case with Hazrat Mr. Walam. I mean, following uh, his fervent prayers and worship, uh, Allah blessed him with direct communion in the form of revelation. And it is difficult to pinpoint as to what precisely was the first revelation, but he became a recipient of many. Mm-hmm. But one that is perhaps uh, quite poignant uh, was one he received during the finalness of his father. It is uh, uh, quite well noted among the members of the community. Uh, and uh, he had received a revelation that his father was not going to survive. And he relied on his father uh, because yes. he himself was not in full-time occupation no. on a regular basis. No. So there is a quote uh, that I just want to, of his, uh, that he, where he writes, that I just want to share. And uh, he says that when I was informed that my father was to die after sunset, the news caused me the pang of grief instinctive to humanity. And since some of the important sources of our family incomes were bound up with his life, for example, the pension and the good service annuity he received from the British government, the thought passed through my mind as to what was to happen after his death. And there came a flutter in my heart that perhaps there would now come days of poverty and pain. All these thoughts passed through my mind in a moment, like a flash of lightning. Immediately there came over me a trance, and a second revelation came translated, Is not God all-sufficient for his servant? Alas Allah, bikafin abduhu. The divine revelation was immediately followed by a feeling of mental relief as though some painful wound had been suddenly healed by a potent ointment. When the revelation came, I understood that God would not allow me to perish. I then wrote down the revelation and made it over uh, to get the revelation inscribed on a stone and have a seal made of it. And this is something that eventually was converted into a ring. Mm. Um, and it is currently worn, from what I remember, by the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, right. uh, along with one or two other rings as well. Right, and, and replicas worn by millions of people yes. around yes. the world. <laughs> so as indicated uh, in the revelation, the father did pass away after sunset. Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's brother, Mirza Ghulam Qadir was his name, became head of the family, but as promised in the revelation, Hazrat Ms. Ghulam Ahmed never found, was never found wanting. Allah truly and surely remained sufficient for his servant. And as a memento of that promise, like you just mentioned, members of uh, our community take pride mm. in wearing the ring that bears that revelation. And uh, when you start receiving revelation, uh, some people don't accept that. No. And we know that every prophet, when they told the people that they received revelations, they were oppressed, mm. they were opposed, persecuted. 
some more severely than others. Mm. And certainly that happened with Mr. Glam Ahmed as well. Yes, um, um, it certainly happened with him. And uh, what we can also say is that um, uh, <clears throat> as far as um, Revelation is concerned, some say that this cannot happen at all. Wow. That it has ceased. Ceased, yeah. Um, yeah. Prophethood and revelation yes. go hand in hand, and neither can happen again. Yes. Yeah. So, but he, as, uh, as yeah. some people describe it as, is is has ceased yeah. with the holy yeah. prophet. But that, that we do not believe that that is the case. No. And as far as um, uh, the Azam um, Ahmed is concerned, his initial op- opposition was not so much about um, his. Um, his, he, about his claim to revelation, mm. but about what uh, else he he said and stood for. Right. But uh, fundamentally, he started off wanting uh, to defend the honor of Islam. So we are living in the 19th century in the cauldron of India where mm-hmm. there's a lot of competing religions, mm. a lot of debate, a lot of discussion going on. Um, it, it was a very debating society, yes. and people did uh, mm. sort of debate. It was very mm. common to have mm. s- uh, long sessions over this, and uh, something you still see a little bit, mm. some remnants of it in yes. Pakistan when yes. I, you know, I go there, people want to do this. Mm. Uh, but he had, if, if I was to say that his, the prayer was his predominant quality mm. of his early life, defending Islam was another quality yes. that he had. Yes. How did he sort of. Uh, uh, materialize that. But he went about doing this. He took, he took the pen right, and responded to any unfair allegation that was made against him. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, it was uh, in the it was a case of writing and responding to allegations that have been made through letters, mm-hmm. uh, through writing articles. Uh, and uh, um, also um, books. He, he also he, he um, also uh, tried his hand at. But his most impressive contribution at the time was Brahini Ahmadiyya. Now, this was a landmark book that expounded upon the beauties of Islam and countered many of the attacks made against it. And the first two volumes uh, were published in 1880. Uh, the third in 1882 and the fourth in 1884, and there was a fifth one uh, much later. It came in 1905. The publication of the first few volumes were well received, especially by the Muslim intelligentsia, who saw this as an outstanding work in defense of Islam and elucidating upon its beauties. And uh, among those heaping praise, so this is, you know, a, a situation in the 80s, in 1880s. He's written his book. He's claimed to be recipient of revelation. But uh, there isn't the kind of opposition that is whipped up against him that he finds later. So it is pretty, still pretty calm, mm-hmm. relatively mm-hmm. calm. And among those that uh, was uh, heaping praise on him after reading this, uh, his books, Brahini Amdi in particular, was Muhammad Hassan uh, of Butala, who later became uh, uh, a very vehement uh, opponent of uh, Mr. Ghulam. He said, uh, and he wrote, in fact, in our opinion, from the point of view of the modern age, this book stands unique in the history of Islam. 
No book has ever been published like this in the past, and we cannot say anything about the future, which is known only to God. The perseverance of the author in the service of Islam through his life, his energy, pen, tongue, and every form of activity is almost unprecedented amongst Muslims. This should not be taken as an Asiatic exaggeration. We challenge anyone to show us the like of this book. So this was indeed a glowing tribute, uh, as I said, coming from somebody who later became a, a leading opponent of his. Uh, I suppose the biggest accolade uh, from following the publication of this book came from on high because in March 1882, he was commissioned by Allah as the reformer of the age. And the revelation was, say, I have been commissioned and I am the first to believe. Mm. So this is the point where uh, he is now charged with the responsibility of reforming mankind, okay, in, um, in direct uh, accordance with an instruction from God Almighty. Mm. I, I, I recall the incident of the Holy Prophet when he was first, when he first revealed, received the first revelation. Yeah. And he approached his companion and said, look, if I tell you, Something mm. is coming over the mountains. Will you believe me? And they mm. said, yes, if I tell mm. you I'm a prophet, I've been claimed to prophet of God, will you believe me? Mm. And then they opposed. And this is very much on those lines, isn't it? Mm. That his early life is the proof yes. of what he's trying to, mm. what mm. he's claiming. Mm. That the early life is a witness to all the others who were present. They never had any criticism no. of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. If, mm. if they had any comment, it was just a praiseworthy comment. Yes. But, and, and what you just related about mm. uh, Batalvi, Hassan Batalvi, is that he, he was renowned. And, and mm. he, this book became a trademark of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, mm. that he was a true defender of Islam. Mm. And if there was one to defend Islam, that's the man to mm. go to. Mm. And as a result of that, he gained great, great popularity. Yes, great popularity. Even these days, I mean, when, when certain uh, scholars, non-Ahmadi Muslim scholars, are discussing... Uh, the times when uh, his Mirza Ghulam was mm. uh, in the 19th, uh, 19th century, they acknowledge the contribution he made in defending Islam. Mm. Yet they don't believe in his claims, but they acknowledge that, uh, that he made a very valuable contribution at a time when other Muslim scholars were not prone to study the literature of other religions yeah and uh, debate uh, and uh, uh, form their arguments based on those on those on, on other scriptures mm. he was able to do that and he he did a remarkable service for for islam and it goes back to the question that the the question i asked earlier where you said that he spent a lot of time in his own studies mm. this is the sort of things that he was studying yes. he was studying other religions mm. he was studying other scriptures he was reading mm. the books of the time mm. he was very uh, uh, understanding of the world as yes. well yes you know, the yes. scientific uh, aspects of the world yes so he spent a lot of time in studying and this is what opponents even of today mm. uh, attribute to Mirza yes. Mamad, that yes. he was extremely knowledgeable mm. in fact not just acknowledge mm. they in fact say he was the shining star mm. of mm. the time Yes. They, yes, they recognize all of them. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, what about uh, the personality of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam? I mean, it was very assured of his position and did not hold back promoting his views. No, too right. I mean, uh, when the fourth volume uh, of Brahini Amdiya was uh, published, 
he sent a preliminary notice uh, of the book with the letter under registered cover to well-known Christian missionaries in India, mm. England, and uh, so England as well. It was included in other countries, and also to Brahman Samajists, Arya Samajists, mm-hmm. naturalists, ruling princes, peers, and Muslim divines, saying that he had been commissioned by God to regenerate mankind through meekness and humility, which characterized the way of Jesus Christ. And the book demonstrated what that Islam is the only perfect religion and the Holy Quran is the actual word of God. And he said that if the addressees, so whoever he's writing to, he said that they wanted to test his truth, all they had to do is to stay with him in Qadian. And he said that he would pay damages at the rate of 200 rupees per month to anyone who came to Qadian for a year and did not see any heavenly sign in favor of Islam. So so convinced he was that they would see a heavenly, heavenly sign in favor of Islam that he was uh, he was prepared to pay two hundred dollars, uh, so two hundred rupees. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but two hundred uh, rupees in those days was well, like two hundred dollars, yes, right? Yes. Um, so it just probably goes to more. show, yeah, uh, yeah, probably more. Just goes to show how convinced and confident he was of his claim, and what is remarkable that many many did take up the invitation, mm. and uh, were not disappointed. And just one question before we go for break, and we'll Mm. continue this discussion after the news. Uh, I suppose during those volatile times in India, combative religious dialogue we were mentioning was at its height and would have drawn a lot of enemies from all faiths, but Mm. some amongst the Muslims also became disenchanted with him. Why was that uh, so? Yeah, but initially the um, animosity from Muslims was, was not so great. Uh, initially, we think that there may there, there may have been a number of reasons uh, as to why this started to grow. One of them appears to have been uh, his stance on jihad. So, Hazrat Ghulam had said that the jihad of the sword was absolutely forbidden in this age, and that it was unlawful to fight the British government. And he emphasized the, that the British government had been a source of many blessings for the people of India and openly declared that their rule was so much better than many others. So this is why he urged uh, Muslims in the name of Islam to be grateful to the British for the peace, uh, security, and freedom and prosperity which they enjoyed under it. But it should be noted here that while extolling the virtue of uh, British rule, he did not fall shy of rejecting their faith and the faith that they promoted, that of Christianity, which he firmly argued against, but he did so with cogent arguments and reasoning. Some Muslims wanted uh, a violent stand to be taken against the British, but, uh, but he occupied the opposite position. And it should also be remembered that the British had claimed that during the previous 50 years, the number of Christians in India had increased from 27,000 to 500,000. Mm. It's a 20-fold increase in half a century that they were able to attain. And it was at this time that Hazamizah Ghulam Ahmed came onto the scene and he was able to stem that tide and make formidable advances in recovering some of those Christian converts back to back for Islam. So his achievement, by any standards, was formidable. Mm. The, the, this term, this holy war, this jihad, the term mm. jihad, 
the initial meaning of jihad never was anything to do with the physical no. war no. other than one to defend yourself. Yes. It appears that this term has been concocted, mm. I think, through Orient, Orientalists yes, and, yes. and created into mm. a holy war, mm. which the Muslims, unfortunately, seem to have adopted. Yes. And as uh, um, our Imam Sab often says, he says there's nothing holy about war. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, war is, uh, you know, something that is resorted to as a last resort. Yes. And uh, it is something that's uh, very cruel and uh, leads to a lot of suffering. Indeed. So there's nothing holy about it. No, um, no, not at all. No, uh, no. And it's something I'm sure we'll yes. discuss in later yes. programs as well. We're coming up to the 11 o'clock news and then we'll finish off uh, some more on the early life of Hazem You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show. We were talking about in our Faith of Focus segment of the sh- show about the prophethood uh, or the claims of Hazem Izzaglam Ahmed. Just to uh, introduce our listeners, the prophethood that we claim of Izzaglam Ahmed, we don't regard him as a law-bearing prophet, but Mm. as a subservient prophet to the Holy Prophet. So uh, uh, unlike what they're trying to do in Pakistan to make out as if Ahmadiyyad claims to be a new religion, this is not the case. This is not the case. Uh, You're absolutely right. Um, As far as uh, the Ahmadiyya standpoint is concerned, uh, the law, uh, as uh, religious law is concerned, uh, that's complete with the the Holy Quran. Mm -hmm. So there cannot be another law-bearing prophet for that reason. But that does not mean that those who follow uh, the teachings of the Holy Quran and follow the guidance given by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, cannot then be raised to the station of, 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 uh, of uh, prophethood. Uh, but there will be prophets uh, bearing or promoting the same teaching as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And this is what the, what the, uh, what Hazrat Mizar yeah. this is exactly what he claimed. And he did say that he would not have this honor of uh, prophethood were it not for uh, him not were it not for him following the holy prophet, the holy prophet peace be upon it is due to him that he has been able to receive uh, this uh, this favor of god almighty Indeed. and where the holy quran states that ponder over what we have revealed to you before hmm. right now this is in line with that because when we look at the prophets of before we had certain high-ranking prophets, in the sense, not high-ranking above others, as the Quran clearly states all prophets are equal, mm. but in the sense that they were given a specific task as of bringing Sharia or laws, and f- after them followed many prophets mm. who did not bring Sharia but followed the prophethood of, a, of the previous prophet. A example being, number one, during the time of Hazrat Ibrahim, mm. he had his two sons who mm. were also prophets. Yes. At the time of Hazrat Musa, we also had Hazrat Harun, who was also a prophet. Mm. But those prophets followed their yes. brother or their father, as, mm. as, as the, the case is. Prophet, yeah. And then we have the case of Jesus, peace be upon him, who followed the laws of Moses. Yes. 
Yes. As a Sharia prophet. Absolutely. So this is in line with that. So yes. this is exactly in line with what the Holy mm. Quran has taught us mm. and what Allah is saying, the ponder over what we have given to yes. you before. Yes. And certainly, I mean, we'll be elaborating upon this more uh, in the next edition yes. uh, of the show about uh, the concept of prophethood and the uh, the prophethood of and how we can ra- rationalize it mm-hmm. uh, quite convincingly uh, on the basis of the teaching of the Holy Quran and the uh, saying the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and they would not be difficult to do at all. Right. So, and this will be a series uh, of uh, yeah. segments that yeah. we will cover in uh, yes. Weekend World Show, and we'll cover the whole process of mm. uh, where we are today with, yeah. with the Ahmadiyya yeah. and the claims yeah. of Mr. Yeah. So continuing now with the, the life of the early life or the early aspect of his life mm-hmm. of Mr. Ahmad, he was nevertheless, with his efforts, appreciated by many Muslims of the time. Yes, um, so uh, as is the case uh, with all prophets, and this is something you were mentioning, that the early days, they are very much acknowledged and appreciated uh, and honoured. Uh, and uh, this is certainly the case with Azam Zuhulam Ahmed, that uh, uh, he was very much uh, lauded for his contribution to uh, the service of Islam in those days. And uh, there's an extract from Riyadh uh, Hind of Amritsar uh, that is worthy of uh, mention. It says, the excellent merits and high spiritual accomplishments of Mirza Ghulam's, uh, Mirza Saab are too great for our humble observations in our journal. The cogent reasons and the brilliant arguments that he has brought forth in support of Islam and truth in so beautiful a manner, show beyond doubt that he has excelled the uh, writings of the old and the new ulama in eloquence and presentation. Those who have read his work, Brahini Ahmadiyya, will surely agree with us in saying that although the book was published several years ago, and a prize and a, and a prize of. Uh, 10,000 rupees was also promised in printed leaflets for its refutation. The opponents of Islam and the Holy Prophet have not had the courage to come forward in the domain of truth and get the prize. So this is his manner, very much uh, uh, relevant in those days, mm. of issuing challenges uh, that, uh, in this case, that if you can refute any of the arguments that I'm making. If you can, um, uh, how can you say? If you can um, uh, make uh, a, an argument that is superior, that shows that um, Islam is not the best of religions, mm. then mm. a prize of 10,000 uh, rupees would be there for you. Was it taken up? Not taken up. <laughs> Not taken up, okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Mm. <laughs> and he was very good at presenting his arguments mm. and mm. very convincing. And therefore, hence, when he put up a challenge like mm. this, he knew where he stood. Yes. And, and we said yes. earlier, he was very yeah. confident mm. uh, of his claims and of yeah. his uh, mm. views and of his position, and he stuck to that. Yeah. What about uh, uh, the, the growth uh, in admiration when... Mr. Grahamama decided to form this community. How did that come about and what, mm. what took place? So, uh, yes, so we are in, in uh, that time of his life where very much he is uh, engaged in this uh, defense of Islam through the pen 
on his own, uh, and uh, he has, uh, at that time, raised a following. Uh, but uh, there is no uh, proper uh, community as such that uh, is established. And uh, in 1888, in early 1888, uh, there was a revelation that he has, and he uh, published uh, a tract uh, in the Riyadh Hind Press. And the end of that uh, is something that uh, I think is relevant. I just want to quote uh, the end of that. It says that the Hazrat Ghulam Ahmed writes that I have been commanded to take bath, that is a pledge of allegiance, of those who are seekers after truth so that they may know what true faith and righteousness are. They should give up indolence, faithlessness, and all manner of iniquity so that they may find the way that leads to the fountain of divine love. Those who feel prepared for this should come to me so that I may befriend them and try to lighten their burden. God will bless them and through my attention and prayer, provided they are fully prepared to carry out divine command and I, and I am hereby today conveying it to, to all. The English translation of the Arabic uh, text of the Revelation is when you have made up your mind, you must trust in God, make an ark under our eyes and under our command. Those who will take bath, the Pledge of Allegiance at your hands, will really be giving their hands into the hand of God. The hand of God is over their hands. So the basic, uh, so this is the first uh, indication of Hazamiza uh, Ghulam Ahmed uh, intending to form a community, commanded by God to form a, form a community. And uh, uh, it gives the rough guidelines of what he expects from those who want to make the Pledge of Allegiance. And these were elaborated um, uh, further into 10 specific conditions. These were then published on 12th January 1889. And the first uh, Pledge of Allegiance took place on the 23rd of March that year at the house of Munshi or Sufi Ahmadiyan. Uh, and I remember being told that this was because the Sufi had been asking Azamiz Ghulam Ahmed to take a pledge from his followers, but the latter, Azamiz Ghulam Ahmed, was very reluctant because he had not been instructed to do so by God. So what he was saying earlier, what he was indicating earlier, that people of this uh, level mm. only do not what they desire, what, they desire, you know, what exactly. other people are saying. They mm. will only do what God tells them. Mm. So it is only when he was uh, uh, received the revelation to this effect uh, that uh, bath was to be taken, that uh, he decided to do so. But by that time, Sufi Ahmad Yan had passed away. And it was out of respect for his sincerity that it was his house that was chosen for that first Pledge of Allegiance. Now, listeners may differ. This is what my recollection, mm -hmm. recollection is. Um, but uh, if listeners do differ and if they uh, can tell exactly what the reasoning was, then perhaps they can call in. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, love yes, to yes. and yes. Uh, I hope that... Our, uh, our aim is to learn. Yes, right? yes. And, yes. To, and to pass on any knowledge we have as yeah. well. So if listeners want to contribute and... and 
in, give us some insight, we're happy to yeah. take the call. And I hope that our, our technical team can cope with the avalanche of calls that we, <laughs> we expect to receive. Okay, and the, the first uh, a Pledge of Allegiance was given to, uh, well, the honor for that was given to us, Molly Nuruddin, who became the uh, first successor. A total of uh, 40 people did so, uh, and that's how the community was born. Indeed. And, uh, I mean, with one last question mm. as an introductory to the life of Mr. Rama, and we'll be going into all of these aspects in more detail in the later shows. Just mm. one last question on this is that at the time he claimed to be the reformer, as we mentioned earlier, but he made further claims soon afterwards. Yes. What was that? So this, again, uh, when you try and uh, identify exactly when, not what, but exactly when, um, a, a year later after the Pledge of Allegiance, so mm. this is 1890 we're talking about, he wrote a book called Fateh Islam and uh, a second book uh, entitled Tawdi Maram, both of which were published in 1891. So it's uh, uh, he wrote it in 1890, published in 1891, and another book was also published, a third one is Allah Oham, in which he claimed that on the basis of divine revelation, he was the Messiah and the Mahdi promised in the scriptures. And one of the, revela one of the revelations uh, that uh, for him indicated this well, may be translated as, it was in Arabic, it, it translates as, we have made you the Messiah, son of Mary. So, you know, this is uh, what resulted in the Azamizah making that claim exactly. of being the Messiah. And he explained that the prophecies about the uh, second advent of Jesus did not mean that the Israelite prophet himself will come down from the heavens. If this were really possible, Elias or Idris uh, would, mm. go, would also have descended physically from the heavens as a forerunner to the advent of Jesus mm. uh, when Jesus Christ appeared. It was John the Baptist that had come in his spirit. So he further explained that on the basis of the Holy Quran and the sayings of the Holy Prophet, that the Mahdi was not the appearance of an individual separate from the Messiah. And drew support for this from Hadith in Ibn Majah. This is one of the authentic books of the collections of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, very strictly analyzed and verified. Uh, where it is recorded that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that la mahdi, la, la mahdi illa Isa. There is no Mahdi but Isa. Mm. So they're one and the same person. So using the the line of uh, revelation of God mm. and also from the sayings of the Holy Prophet yeah. to prove yeah. what he was yeah. claiming. So these are very contentious claims mm. among Muslims. Both the claim about being the Messiah the Messiah and the Mahdi being the same, and then the third one, being a prophet of God. So this is something that we will analyze in greater detail. And very the, contentious yes. at the time, and still is today. Still is today. And yeah. still is, uh, indeed. Thank you very much, Willie. Great introduction to the life and claims of uh, Zamizah Glam Ahmed, and uh, we will be delving each aspect of those uh, introductory comments uh, in our show, in the future shows, and mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll take several weeks to cover yeah. and undo all of that. Right? Yeah. Let's move to our next segment of the show, uh, the long awaiting behind the headlines. Just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been reversed. should call a general election. Weekend world. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines.
Chapter 16, verse 91, Allah Almighty says, Verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred and forbids indecency and manifest evil and wrongful transgressions. He admonishes you that you may take heed. Uh, We'll come to a topic which highlights the worst humanity can do. One which needs reminding, as they say, lest we forget, as it is said. But are lessons being learned? And what sort of atrocities have taken place? Uh, We are, uh, or there was the commemorative day of uh, the Holocaust Memorial. And on their website, the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, they state on their website as following. Genocide is facilitated by ordinary people. Ordinary people turn a blind eye, blind propaganda, join murderous regimes. And those who are persecuted, oppressed and murdered in genocide aren't persecuted because of the crimes they've committed. They are persecuted simply because they are ordinary people who belong to a particular group, e.g. Romas, Jewish communities, Tutsis, etc. What else do they say? Ordinary people, they say, were involved in all aspects of the Holocaust, uh, Nazi persecution of other groups, and in the genocides that took place in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and Darfur. Ordinary people were perpetrators, bystanders, rescuers, witnesses, and ordinary people were victims. Yes, in every genocide, those targeted face limited choices, choiceless choices, as it said. But in every genocide, the perpetrators have choices. Ordinary people have choices. Uh, joining us this morning from Surrey is Saf Ahmed, uh, who regularly contributes to our show with his in-depth researches and insight to political, religious and financial matters. Assalamu alaikum, Saf. Wa alaikum gentlemen. Yeah, so you as well. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, uh, apologies for keeping you on hold, but we were covering no, some no, very no. important aspects of uh, the early life of Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed. Coming on to uh, the Holocaust, uh, we, I, I started saying that uh, it's, it's a topic which highlights the worst humanity can do. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Quran reminds us that, you know, keep away from manifest evil and indecency and wrongful transgression. And yet mankind continues on that path. The Holocaust Remembrance Day was initiated after the terrible genocide of the Jewish people in Europe and in particular by Hitler and his Nazi regime. Can you tell us a little bit more and about the Holocaust Memorial Day? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, um, you know, it's a... Something that started up in, I think, 2005, sorry, 2001, um, was initially when it sort of came to birth, where um, the, the idea of actually remembering the day. Um, and in, uh, sort of in its early, sort of, uh, I think it was just about the Holocaust, but since then, um, uh, you know, they, they've uh, included a lot more gen- uh, genocide because the reality is, um, you know, the, the, the sort of lessons that were learned from the Holocaust are very, very similar. You know, the they say that history uh, may not repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. Um, and it's, uh, it's very clear that, um, for example, the, uh, the, uh, the, the atrocities that took place in the Holocaust have 
have there have been others um, uh, of very similar nature. You mentioned, for example, uh, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, Darfur, uh, etc. Uh, why the 27th of January? But it, it, quite simply because 27th of January marks the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau, the largest Nazi death camp. Um, so every year on that day, um, the Holocaust Memorial Day will take place. And in the words of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, uh, it, it encourages the remembrance, um, really in a world scarred by genocide. Um, so it's been the set day for the trust to remember the six million or seven million, I, I think the numbers are uh, uh, varied, but uh, over the six million Jews murdered during the Holocaust, and then alongside the millions of other people uh, that were killed uh, under the Nazi persecution. And as I said, in subsequent years, we've also, you know, they've also um, have, have chosen to remember the genocides in. Um, and some of the very grave uh, genocides that took place in, you know, Cambodia, uh, Rwanda, Bosnia. Um, so it's really a day designed to honor the victims and to develop educational programs uh, to help prevent future genocides. Mm. Um, Saf, um, when you, we review these figures, and we were talking about this earlier, uh, we find that a lot of these atrocities have been perpetrated by Europeans. The annihilation of uh, the indigenous populations of the Americas and uh, Australia, mm-hmm. for instance. The uh, genocides that uh, you've been mentioning in, in Europe and uh, of, of the Jews in particular. Do you think there is something uh, intrinsically uh, um, intrinsically wrong with the with the European psyche, or is it is it just a reflection of uh, of the trait of, of humanity that there is this uh, this uh, weakness whereby mm. these kind of uh, injustices are uh, perpetrated? No, I think it's a it's a really really interesting point, and I did I heard your intro, and um, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think when you look at it in more modern history, um, and when I say modern history, you know, looking back at the last of the five hundred years or so, um, one can point to the fact that um, especially European nations, um, as they sort of ventured further. Um, and uh, have sort of, you know, have have, uh, uh, have sought to sort of, uh, it, it, you know, you have, you have, we have to be honest. I mean, you know, it, it was just, uh, it was just to sort of create their own wealth or, or mm. sort of extend their own wealth. Um, have uh, perpetrated some of the worst atrocities. Um, we, I think, we just have to remember that they're probably more covered in history, mm. um, and you know, we we have more information about them. Um, for example, uh, when uh, one one of the greatest ones that comes into contention, we can talk about it a little bit further, is uh, you know obviously when the the uh, uh, when the Americas were found in inverted inverted mm. by Christopher Columbus. I mean, you know, the genocide that took place amongst the sort of local population were huge and were staggering. Um, but it's well documented. That's why we know. You know, mm. are we to look at, for example, you know, a few years ago I was in China and you know they, they were actually talking about how the Han dynasty um, had literally taken over and, you know, they, they, they had sort of uh, taken over swathes of China and there would have been genocide then. You know, you, you also look at the Mongols and the Ottoman Empire. Everyone sort of has, um, unfortunately, uh, all of these major empires and major uh, 
um, uh, sort of, uh, all of the major sort of powers at that time um, were committing genocide. And I think it, it is fair to sort of look at look upon it and, you know, like now sort of understand who are the power brokers and how can we make sure that we're not we're not committing the same sort of uh, problems that we have in the past. Mm. Um, the, the history of the world is littered with powerful people killing en masse to achieve a political goal. Uh, political goal. However, uh, is it right there is, a, there is a contention or what is accepted as a genocide and what is not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, actually, I, when I was doing when I was doing some research into this, it's um, it's become very clear that there, there's actually, although you'd think that the the idea of having a charter over what uh, you know and a convention over what um, uh, what the genocide is, um, it's uh, and. Whilst it has really enjoyed a lot of unanimous international support, there, there is a lot of, um, I would say, that there's a lot of contention over the actual definition um, of how one puts it together. Um, for example, if you actually look at, uh, if, you know, if you search for a list of genocides, you know, you'd be surprised that there's, there's quite a few, uh, there, there's quite a few things that are actually omitted, um, you know, out of those lists. And actually, a lot of those lists will tell you. Um, or, you know, the, the authors of those lists will be very clear that, you know, much of what is written is actually under contention. Um, for, you know, we, we all know, I think there's an accept, uh, acceptance that, you know, the, uh, the Holocaust, um, you know, the Cambodia uh, and uh, things, they, they are sort of uh, fairly uh, thing. But, I, I mean, I pushed to something like, for example, the, uh, the current status of, the Uyghur Muslims um, in uh, in China, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, you can look at sort of other things um, all over. You, you could look at even, for example, the Great Purge that you had in uh, China. You could look at the Congo, Congolese. There, there's some things that do come under contention because of the definition of what's been set out by the UN. Um, because, and it's it, it's it, again, it's the power brokers that wanted to ensure that the definition. Um, was a certain way because then it would have put them under uh, under greater spotlight. Um, for example, the way that it's actually um, listed, uh, the, sorry, the way it's actually defined um, would uh, it, it omits it omits the genocide of large swathes of America, you know, of the Americas, the, the native population of the Americas um, uh, when they came over because that's not a that's not a conversation that I think they. Um, that certain that you know certain governments want to have, um, it would put them under a lot more stress uh, to, uh, for example, maybe have to pay some reparation damages, which they want to do. Um, there is also a very clear. I mean, I, you know, when I was reading, that there was a uh, the the Americans had uh, a lot of problems with the earlier points of definition. Uh, the, sorry, the earlier definition, uh, and they actually wanted to remove um, certain aspects because they also had a concern about the black genocide accusations that they would have got over the Jim Crow uh, laws um, in in the mid 1950s. So, this is, I mean, you know, the, the, there is there is a uh, con the actual definition is very very contested, um, and it does leave out um, what you or I would say um, that that's surely a genocide. That that actually does leave it out. And there's also another. There's a, there's there's other reasons for it as well because um, legally, um, a genocide does does bring that uh, can bring a country into uh, into the realms of a possibility. Of, you know, they may actually face some retribution from uh, from from uh, from 
uh, governments outside. I mean, the the Holocaust uh, Memorial Day itself is about mostly uh, concentrating on the atrocities committed against the Jewish people. Mm. Um, is that sometimes clouding over the other uh, holocausts that have taken place? You mentioned uh, Cambodia, you mentioned uh, Rwanda, uh, the Uyghurs yeah. in China. Uh, we, and if you look at the ones held, you know, the, the, the genocides of, of the past, uh, mm. take Armenia, for example, nearly 90% of Armenians of the time were <coughs> annihilated, I think, yeah. if that's not the case. Those are, I mean, as as bad, if not worse, as uh, yeah. as uh, what is claimed uh, for the Holocaust of the Jewish people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, uh, you know, one wouldn't want to sort of get into a point of, um, you know, putting, picking yeah. one against the other. No, right? correct. However, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there, there, there have been genocides. And I think you have to give a lot of credit to the Jewish community for uh, raising awareness. Indeed. Over it. You know, that, Indeed. Uh, you know they, they've done it um, uh, incredibly well. And they have, you know, they've um, made it very clear that um, as, a, as a minority in many of those countries that they should be. We see it from ourselves, you know, like even, for example, Muslims in uh, certain countries. And actually, you know, certain minorities within Muslim countries, you know, should also um, have... Um, uh, are not are not uh, protected anymore. So so there is a lesson to be learned over it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you take for example the Cambodian genocide, and you know when you, re- I mean, it really does bring uh, it, it, the the manner and the um, way in which those genocides took place. When you almost uh, you know re- you, they reduced the population hmm. um, by nearly a third um, by some accounts. Um, you know the the whole thing of. Uh, the, the actual population of Cambodia was actually reduced by such an, uh, a, a huge amount. Yeah. Um, on this, you look at the Armenians. Yes, absolutely, ninety percent of Armenians. I mean, that's a huge, you know, like sort of uh, racial ethnic class that was actually um, obliterated by the Ottoman Empire. You look at Rwanda. You know, although it's only eight hundred deaths, it's a small number in like figures in that kind. You know, eight hundred or eight hundred thousand deaths. 800,000, sorry, 800,000. You say only, but that's, uh, yeah, that's nearly a million. Yes, I mean, in the sense of, you know, like if you sort of put it in a scale, you know, like sort of human suffering, it sort of goes low. But that's also that 60 or 70% of the Tutsi, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Tutsi group. That's that's huge. I mean, you know, like you're talking about, um, and I think the, the question really sort of uh, almost becomes that how can, you know, how can those in power, how can they come to a conclusion that that is the best way forward? Mm. I think, you know, one, one really does have to look at the psyche, I think, of um, of those people that perpetrate those, sure. uh, those atrocities. Uh, one of the aims of the Memorial Day is that uh, lest we forget sort of thing, that we, you know, mm. we should never forget this so that it doesn't happen again. So in 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 that spirit, can you quantify the number of deaths of some of the other genocides that you have been mentioning, just so that our listeners can understand the sort of levels of genocides that have taken place. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some that you, you you know, you look at and, um, for example, I mean, and and actually figures are always contested over this as well. They are, you're um, right, because they're always an official figure. Even the Holocaust figures, the Holocaust figures didn't come in until the Nuremberg trials, I think, several years after the event as well, yeah. 
I mean, you know, there's a, there, for all of these, there's always a low figure and a high figure, and um, mm. you know, it, 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 both tend to be sort of um, high uh, enough to difficult. be mentioned. <laughs> correct, correct. And I think, I mean, but one, of, I think the ones that, for example, um, I, I think again, when I was reading into it, I think the genocide of the people of the Americas does stand out to me. I mean, you know, the the, the Spanish colonization of the Americas. I think it's estimated to have killed over 56 million people uh, in just over a century. Now, that may seem like a lot, but you, you also have to take into consideration. I think that's more when you take into consideration at that time, the population was, you know, the population of the world was lower. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go through some of the actual abhorrent abuses that took place over the time, um, was, was, was great lethal. I think also when you take, for example, the partition of India and Pakistan, I mean, it is understood, you know, the, the figure again goes between anything between sort of three, 300,000 to over one and a half million. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, those, those were done um, again under the, uh, under the guise of, uh, you know, they're the, the sort of political tools and they end up masking what the real, uh, what the real, um, um, I guess the real effect that that has on a population. I mean, you know, India and Pakistan, I, I, I would actually sort of go as far as to say they've never really gotten over that whole period of time. You know, so even uh, one would say, you know, the, the, the fighting that's occurred since, you know, is a result of, uh, is a result of those, um, uh, uh, of that movement. So it does tend to have this very long, um, you know, it sort of seeps into the uh, the psyche of people as well afterwards, and and they never sort of hold good. I mean, we we are also talking about, for example, you mentioned, you know, some of the issues that uh, Palestine and Israel have. Mm-hmm. I mean, one would have to say, you know, like there there, there is a sort of echo of um, you know what happened to the Jewish people, um, and uh, you know it now it, it sort of reverberates, and because they're so protective over that land. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of causing all, all manner of problems there. Yeah. It's, uh, genocides have this knock-on effect, and, and it's very difficult for people to be able to take... I mean, again, you go back to the Americas, you know, we're now talking about the aspects of Black Lives Matter. People are now looking at Christopher Columbus and actually questioning whether he's this sort of great, you know, saviour of uh, the Americas. Uh, and and uh, people do want to have a look at the right... You know, they want to look at the right history. When you talk about the when you talk about the Americas, you're talking about the annihilation of the Red Indians. You're talking about the South Americas, what the Spanish did right. there, and possibly even the Portuguese. Yes, absolutely, exactly. It's, you know, on both sides of the on both sides of that continent, you know, the North and the South. I mean, um, plus, you know, like then you 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 had all of the um, everything that went along with it, the slave trade that came along with it. That, yeah. Um, in order for that to actually, for them to prosper from this mass amount of land that they had found, they actually had to get um, free labor um, from the Africans to try and, uh, you know, to, uh, to do that. There's this, you know, again, as I said, a not on effect. And um, one would hope that we're in a better place right now, but there, there, are, there are also sort of modern genocides that are taking place. The problem with and the problem with the sort of modern genocide is that they become now sort of steeped in this political language as to what constitutes a genocide and what doesn't. Mm. Um, we know, for example, you, you know the, the the issue in China, for example, with with the Uyghur Muslims. Um, everyone's very. I think it's it's understood that there is that there is something taking place and that there have been killings. But the 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 again, you know, like the sort of. Uh, 
the, the international uh, governments are struggling to sort of make, uh, to be able to say something because essentially if you were to say that there is a genocide taking place, um, that country then actually is, <laughs> they become, you know, like you have to do something about it almost, you know, and um, so it's a very difficult political thing nowadays to uh, to claim a genocide. And that's one, I think that's one of the sort of points about the contention is, uh, and I think that's one of the um, shortcomings of the convention as it currently stands, is it, it almost tries to mask um uh, uh, you know like uh, some some genocide um, in order you know in order not to be able to sort of uh, for anyone to do anything about them what about the illegal wars that have taken place uh, we look at what happened in vietnam we look at what's happened yes. in iraq uh, yeah. i mean you know you, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of deaths there uh, why are they never classified as genocides? Is it because history is written by the victors? Yes, to a large degree, absolutely. And I think, again, you know, you look at actually why um, why those. There has always been the, the definition um, of, of, uh, the, of a genocide under the UN Convention um, mm. has excluded political groups and has also given the allowance of... Um, uh, for example, it's, it's also given the allowance that uh, in war there are um, there is collateral damage. You know, mm. like one of the I think one of two of two words I think that um, have uh, have a lot to answer for in history. Uh, yes, um, uh, uh, that, you know, this is and you're absolutely right. I think, um, and of course, what happens is you know this is why before Iraq, uh, say for example, before the Iraq War, before the Vietnamese War these things get taken to uh, the UN, um, they are voted on, and, you know, they, they, it's, it's decided that under international law that these things are acceptable or not. Now, then again, we sort of have this next... <laughs> the, the, we, we have another conversation, mm. which um, is that, uh, you know, how fair have those been? Uh, is there a bias? And I think there is a general bias. I think, you know, you, can, you cannot deny that there is a bias of... Uh, what gets accepted as a as a legitimate war and what doesn't? Um, uh, because even now, when uh, we look back on certain wars and we we look at it as well, the, you know, the the premise of uh, uh, the premise and the pretense of going into a war have now not been met. Um, surely one can call it a genocide, but a, a lot of the governments will do everything they can to ensure um, that sure. that definition is stuck to. And you know, you have a lot of uh, this is and this is the problem when you have a lot of lawyers that are deciding whether something is a genocide or not. I think that's where you, you that's where your problem lies. Surely yeah. it's 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 more acceptable to look at something and, yeah. and make that decision um, on the basis of the fact. The harshness of the humanity aspect is taken away by the lawyers. I think Willie's got a <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think Willie's got a question or two. Yes, brace yourself for this. I mean do you think uh, <laughs> do you think uh, what is happening to the Palestinian people is a genocide? Uh, Look at their population, the way it's uh, dwindled proportionately between 48 and now, and the fact that Palestine, for all intents and purposes, has been erased from the face of the earth. And it's ironic that uh, the victims of uh, a Holocaust are uh, doing the same to uh, another people. I think I would, if I can just butt in there, Valid, sorry. Sure. Uh, Israel was a state, a political state, a Zionist state, created for the, the Jewish nation. Now, the state is 
it is slightly different to the Jewish people. So to say that the sufferers of the Holocaust are now perpetrating, I would I would like to contend that, but I would certainly say that the state created for those people mm. is guilty of persecuting the Palestinians, uh, the, the, to, right. to whom yes. the land belongs. Yeah? You're quite yeah. right to make that distinction. Thank you very much. Because I know uh, Jewish yes. um, people like Noam Chomsky, Jews, yes. Finkelstein, uh, Holocaust uh, survivor, yeah. have spoken against uh, what, the, Israel is what doing. certain yeah. section of his community. And, and many Labour MPs, yes. uh, Gerald Kaufman and, yeah. and the like, are yeah. all against yeah. what Israel is yes. doing. So we, we want to make that distinction very clear. Very important. That this is never an attack on the Jewish people. Yes. Because... Uh, on mass. On mass, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sir, Seth, I just wanted to... No, 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 I mean, look, I, mean, I think... I, th- I think you're right to make the distinction. I think, um, I, I think, for example, you, you spoke earlier with um, with, with Rafik about this, and um, you know, the, the, uh, Israel itself as a state um, has a, uh, has taken a much more right wing, um, uh, you know, they've taken a much more right wing stance. So that, I think that's more the political angle of it um, uh, uh, over the last, I would say, over the last few decades. Of course. You know, we can sort of discuss what's happened before, before the Oslo Agreement, and everything that's happened afterwards. Mm. Um, that, that you know, there, there is absolutely a, a point of contention. But I think this is a state-run um, issue. Um, well, look, I mean, if you look at what the actual definition is, that is that a genocide must have criminal intent to destroy or to cripple permanently a human group. The acts which are directed against groups as such and individuals are selected for destruction only because they belong to these groups. Um, one would have to say that we are on the ver- if if not an, if not um, a genocide is there's definitely an apartheid taking place, mm-hmm. um, and uh, one that needs to be uh, I, I think there needs to be a much more honest conversation um, about the Palestinians uh, you know what's happening with the Palestinians in in Israel at the moment um, or you know in in their in their occupied land um, uh, th- there is systematic abuse of uh, international law. Um, there is systematic abuse of the people that are within those areas. Um, I think genocide, I th- you know, there are points where one could say that, that it's a fair definition and it actually meets all of the criteria of the definition. Um, it is obviously, we all know that, it, uh, that there is so many more complications um, when it comes with that area. and. Um, you, we, we can only pray that I guess that you know that they find some sort of thing and that common sense is preserved. I, I I worry a little bit that unfortunately, especially you know the Palestinian side as well. You know they they, they do have um, some very sort of uh, extreme extreme factions of it. But uh, they the, don't the, do the, themselves the many favors sometimes. No, they don't. But I but I do worry a little bit about the uh, the Israeli political side, where where, where this is getting more and more. Mm. Uh, they're turning more and more right wing, and, um, and 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 that I think is a problem for the future. I I, I I'm concerned. I would say <laughs> especially I'm, I'm concerned. especially when you have a right wing leader Netanyahu who is in coalition yeah. with even more right wing views I think the issue was I think with, with Netanyahu I think everyone felt that he was probably by and large um, as extreme as you could come but mm. yeah he, the, 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 I, I think there there is a real concern that there are there are members within his cabinet now that are yeah. 
that, that, that are even more um, uh, extreme. Than indeed. And, and just the one last question for you, Seth. You, you, you spoke about being more open, about being honest about what's happening. We mm. have the Ukraine war taking place. Yeah. Uh, what America did in Iraq, the, yeah. the propaganda that was put out by the Western press was as if they were the saviors and Iraqis were the perpetrators. And the same thing is happening in Russia, what Russia has done to Ukraine. Mm. And now the narrative is the opposite. Uh, this is just political games, is it not? And dishonesty. Yeah. And, and, and when you see that when nine Palestinians are dead, hardly any of the uh, news coverage was given to that, apart from possibly Channel 4 and certainly Al Jazeera, but as soon as two, uh, there's an attack, a horrific attack on the synagogue, we're killing seven people, and rightly so, was covered by all the press. Mm. This need, this narrative, this propaganda war has to change if if there's honesty in, in our political powers. It is. And, uh, you know, it, uh, and I think um, somebody, uh, I mean, you, you, you almost look at social media is now filling that gap to a slight degree, you know, that you, you, you ha we have access to a lot more information. And we, we, I think people are, people have the ability now um, to make much more informed decisions um, than they have done in the past. However, um, the, the issue is not so much that social, what social media provides, is actually that mainstream media actually do uh, still control the narrative. Um, uh, uh, you know, very much so. If it, if it's sort of brought into light um, about certain factions and X, Y, and Z, you know, like are doing this. Uh, you know, for example, I think the Ukraine and Russian war uh, at the moment, um, the, the way that that's being played out, I think both have. Uh, I think definitely Russia does have a lot to answer for, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, the, the way that they came in, and they've also made uh, spurious claims of you know ethnic cleansing on the eastern side of. Thing. However, you know, there, there is, there, there has to be, you know, equally, there have been spurious claims made by, um, by, by the Ukrainian side, I would say, in inverted commas, um, which have been backed up, um, uh, you know, and almost given a lot more airtime. Um, but I would say they're still spurious. So we need to be, this is what I mean about being honest. I think we need to be honest about what there is here, what, what is going on here is essentially, you know, there is a nation and pretty much Russia was was seen as, um, you know, as a kind of, uh, you know, the, the bogeyman um, for the West. And, uh, you know, it going into war has, has concerned people you know, rightly, but also I don't think we should be making spurious claims. I think we should be being very clear that we are, you know, that whatever is being done is being done on the basis of there is political gain to be made um, mm -hmm. by people. I think it's the same with the Iraq war. You know, I think, again, we did it on completely spurious claims. I think had there been uh, more... And not spurious Iraq, claims, yeah. lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm just being... I'm, uh, I'm be trying to be uh, polite. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, let's be honest with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but again, you know, it, but, but it created a legitimacy for going into war. And mm. I think that's, that is, that is, that's the problem. I think, you know, when you start making spurious claims, when you start making lies, to go into war, I think, I mean, you know, that, that there does need to be some sort of comeback. I think that, that, that there has to be a, um, there has to be some sort of um, comeuppance for those people that 
uh, that that do that because when it is just for political and economic gain, mm. um, uh, you know, you're talking about lives, you know, and it, it sometimes it's very easy to sort of put numbers on these things to say seven million people died in this or one point seven eight hundred, but you know, the, the empathetic side of us needs to come out and actually recognize that those are real human beings. Absolutely, you know, every one yeah. of them. They are and, family. And, and this is what the Holocaust is all about. It's about the human correct. value and the the, the, tra- yeah. the the value of human life. You talk life. about the normal people, you exactly. know, like the whole normal people. It's, it's exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Seth, thank you very much uh, for some insights there and uh, views and thoughts and uh, giving us some figures of Holocaust that generally take place have been taking place around the world and, and it appears we have we are learning not much uh, but let's pray that uh, such uh, inhumanity stops and uh, humanity returns to the people of the world thank you very much thank Seth. you very much exactly thank you right Walid, uh mm. last and final segment of the show uh, always your favorite I know this oh, well, especially yeah. now that we're in uh, FA Cup mode Oh, not my favorite on favorite. Weekend World <laughs> Sports Review. So you're putting it down to the Champions League uh, mm-hmm. as to why the FA Cup has lost its essence. Uh, anything to do with possibly the TV coverage in the old days? It used to be on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening at five o'clock. We used to be by our TV looking at all the results. Nowadays, as matches are on a Friday, on a Saturday, on a Sunday, on a Monday, you know. That's you part know of it. Yeah. That's part of it. I think the other uh, other aspect of it is the disparity that exists between teams. Ah, that's and a very good point. And in the FA Cup, you have uh, the lower teams uh, also coming in, where matches uh, very often are tend to be a foregone conclusion, mm. not of a high standard. In the old days, you you were expecting. The the Colchester's or the mm. uh, what was that Redford goal? I can't remember. It was Colchester, wasn't it? Against oh, the remember. lead or no, something. No, my memory is not that good <laughs> yeah, okay. at all. But mm. you know that sort of thing. You know, yes, you don't really see it anymore. No. Um, no. And and certainly we did yeah. see it on Fridays. Well, Friday was only the City mm. Arsenal game, but you didn't see it yesterday. No. In any of the games, there's no, no banana skins, which is no. what FA Cup's all about. Yes, yes, and. Uh, um, you know, we. I mean, it's become a boring competition. You know, there's I don't know how many hundred people put in the second teams in. Yes, yeah, like ninety all teams compete, and then Manchester City win the cup. You know? <laughs> 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 oh, oh, is it Man City or Man U? Because they've certainly come up. They've and, certainly come and, up. And Casemiro was outstanding yesterday. Y- yes, apparently, as yes. he was in the World Cup. Uh, yes, uh, I don't know. Was he? Was yeah, he was. He was selected right. by many uh, in the in the final squad. Although okay. the, all the Brazil lost, but many were saying that Brazil were probably the best team mm. who didn't get through. Mm. Uh, so, but Casemiro certainly was uh, outstanding in the World Cup as well. Yes, and he did shine uh, with two goals uh, uh, yesterday uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, um, and so did uh, Son for Tottenham. For Tottenham, uh, yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. But but Casemiro is making a big difference to Man United, yes. and uh, the two it was the Brazilians who mm. scored the goals for yeah, yeah, yesterday yeah. for for Man. And he was the one that. Uh, People, many people say that uh, was missed, was very much missed uh, in that clash uh, at the top of the table between Arsenal and Man United when Man United lost. Mm-hmm. 
that he was the one that uh, so, perhaps would have, may have saved the day. But yeah, uh, that's indeed. a different. That's not the FA Cup. No. That's the league, isn't it? Uh, yes. We don't want to discuss the we, league. No, not yet. <laughs> but uh, going back to the Friday game, Man City Arsenal. It's a fairly dreary game, but a good yeah. final goal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that just about crept in, didn't it? Ecky, yes. yeah, that, yeah. Uh, was mm. it a pass or was it an attempt at goal? No, no, it was an attempt for, yeah. uh, for goal, okay. but he wasn't sure whether it was on on, on target or not. Right. He saw that it may yeah. actually hit the post. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unlike, so, unlike the Tillerman uh, penalty. Yes, well, I, I, have, I didn't see. I did hit the post. Didn't <laughs> it did hit the post. <laughs> but, but Leicester did manage to, oh, to scrape through. through, scrape oh, through. Um, so no goals for uh, Erling Haaland yesterday, but Nathan Aiken scored that goal, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, Haaland overrated? <laughs> he did score a no, goal yesterday. Uh, well, um, no, it will be difficult to say that he's overrated. He's a, he's a phenomenon. Absolute phenomenon. Absolute phenomenon. But I think that uh, teams uh, are learning how to play it. against him yeah, yeah. and uh, cutting the supply and, uh, right. yes, and uh, doing some uh, other work. <laughs> which is best left to euphemisms like this right okay okay uh, but no he, he's a standing player and mm. but he didn't score but City were yeah overall I think that just the better yeah, team on the day about, yeah. but Arsenal I think are, are a good team as well uh, in terms of the other games uh, Leeds and Leicester had possible banana skins but mm. through yes despite Tillerman's uh, pen- missed penalty yeah, yeah. Um, that first goal by Leeds was very good I didn't see it. Oh, uh, right. right. Okay. okay, maybe yeah. I should ask one of my yeah, sons yeah, yeah, to absolutely. put it on. Yeah, Okay. Uh, and certainly... Who was uh, it scored by? Leeds goal? I forgot. The very, very good one? Yeah, yeah. Hmm? Don't ask difficult So good? Yeah. Right. No, it was very good. Uh, uh-huh. uh, the other game that I saw yesterday, the uh, highlights, was the Fulham versus Sunderland. Uh-huh. Ex- excellent game. Really? Uh, it was a draw. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, it was dramatic because the 15-year-old... Yes, 15-year-old Chris Rigg, oh, right. not Giggs. Uh, Chris Rigg scored a goal. Uh-huh. He came on as a substitute. Uh-huh. Could have been the youngest to have scored. 15-year-old. 15-year-old. Younger Absolute. than me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, he, really? His goal was given disallowed because oh. because of an offside of another player. Uh-huh. Uh, Abdullah ba was offside. But uh, to come on at, a, at, that, at that age, FA Cup, against, uh, you know... Uh, a good team, and uh, nearly winning the game for them. So oh dear. some good oh. prospects. So this uh, Chris Rigg is a name to look out for. Okay, so no doubt that he'll be playing for Manchester City soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> let him score. Let, yes, like like Rooney when he came on for Everton was outstanding, and then he was very quickly taken up by Man U. So mm. I recommend the big clubs yes. will be going for him. I've grown a bit cynical about the way the game is going. But but it, it reflects on what you were saying, mm. that uh, the disparity between the clubs now, that mm. the, any potential players will be quickly mm. swollen up by the yes. big clubs. Yes. And the big clubs are the ones who are going to be in the quarterfinals, yeah. semifinals and the finals. Yeah. And uh, just an extension of what's happening in the Premier League. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, putting a dampener on these big because the FA Cup was all about the underdog. Mm, uh, mm. You know, I remember the yeah. Sunderland-Leeds game uh, when uh, Sunderland won. Um, oh. You know, amazing game, and right. you're not going to get those games again. Mm. When was that then? Uh, 71, oh, I think, 72. Yeah. 
No, I can't remember that far back. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a Leeds fan in those days. So I was very really? Upset. Yeah, but amazing goal but uh-huh. on that day. And I remember Lorimer missed uh, right in front of the goal. He hit the underside of the bar and the ball reflected back out and the goalkeeper oh, made the save. Stoko was the Stoko manager. Was oh, the, Bob yes, Stoko when he ran that, on yeah. with, the, with the hat on. And yes, 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 I remember that. I, yes. I, I wonder if some of our listeners can even remember that. Yeah. <laughs> but those were the days of the FA Cup when we used to That's watch right. it with, 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 with Thrilled excitement, mm, uh, mm. but no longer as you you didn't even bother watching it yesterday uh, no. uh, as a reflection. No. But I think we're heading towards these big clubs getting towards the next round and and slowly eating. Mm. But a good game today, two mm. Premiership game uh, teams, Liverpool and Brighton at uh, right. uh, the Seagulls. Uh-huh. Uh, who do you think uh, is going to do that? Is Liverpool on a slight slide at the moment? They're not performing no, that great, not. and Brighton are producing some excellent results. Yes. It's going to be an interesting match, uh, but I think um, Liverpool will have uh, will have the uh, expertise to overcome. To, yeah, on I think to overcome. Will uh, they take the tour- the, the the tournament yeah. seriously to to do that? Well, they have to because they've got little else to play for, uh-huh. uh, apart from perhaps the Champions League. Mm. Mm. So, Indeed, yeah. But uh, the league, I, they've given up. Uh, and so uh, these are the only two main competitions they will be uh, they'll yeah. be hoping for yeah. some silverware from. Right. Mm. Uh, just want to finish off on, on hockey. I mm-hmm. know you, you haven't been following the international hockey, which I sometimes still do. Mm-hmm. There was a World Cup. We spoke to Shahid last time. And he was disappointed that Pakistan was not in it, and uh, at least India was representing. But looking at the results, uh, the top uh, uh, eight nations in this World Cup are all European or Australian, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, India have come 10th. Uh, Pakistan isn't in the tournament. And to me, this is a bit reminiscent of... Uh, when England lost the Ashes or the, the lost the Test series against Australia, mm-hmm. an article in the Times was written about the Ashes, that these the, uh, they burned the the bales, mm-hmm. and said that this is rest in peace for English cricket. Mm-hmm. And I feel this is that moment for Pakistan hockey, mm-hmm. that uh, okay. but despite, they were the revival. They no, were the thing is that Pakistan have won more Champions Leagues than anyone, more World Cups than anyone, mm-hmm. and yet they are not even in this tournament. Mm-hmm. And they're losing to teams like Japan and mm-hmm. Korea and, and things like that. It's a watershed, you think? Yeah. I think it's yeah, a watershed. It's a turning, and, 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 and the money, as you mentioned about mm-hmm. the other game, the, the money has taken over. And all these clubs, including India, have a lot of money in their sport. And Pakistan haven't got that money. Until they do that, they won't come again. Mm-hmm. I, I'm praying that they do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, thank you to our contributors, Mahmoud Rafiq, uh, Saf Amadi, and of course yourself, Walid, for joining me, and thank to you. our listeners and Zishan, our technical in office. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.